0: Good morning and welcome to all of you here this morning. It's good to see a couple of visitors here with us. I trust that you can join in and, and worship with us. Last weekend, our family was not here. We were enjoying West Virginia together as the extended Schrock family and was we're glad we could do that again this year. And uh, But I also missed being here and... Uh, and trust that this can be an enjoyable time together this morning. I know that there's others that are gone this weekend for similar types of getaways with family. This summer when we were out in Kansas was the first time that our family, my wife and sons, got to experience wheat harvest or to see what wheat harvest is all about. It's only a one to two week period of time obviously depends a lot on the weather, it's usually in middle to the end of June, this year it was a little bit later, it was the beginning of July, where Kansas farmers harvest thousands of acres of wheat, uh, thousands upon thousands of acres, and um, the risk of rain or windstorms or hail motivates them to keep at it as long and hard as they can when it's possible. Uh, they'll work until late into the night, to, if, if, if possible. Um, the only thing that stops them is when, they, when it gets tough, uh, or the moisture and so forth. I don't know how many of you have been to, to Kansas, but out there the roads are in square miles. Uh, They run north and south, and east and west, and most of the roads are square miles, most of them are gravel. This summer my brother Joe and I were driving around and he pointed out a single field that covered an entire 640 acres, an entire square mile. One field, no fences, no trees, nothing, just one square mile field. Um, There's no houses or anything on that. And even in Kansas, that's fairly uncommon um, today. However, back during the 1930s when my dad was born there, uh, that would not have been as unusual, and that is the time when it was known as the Dust Bowl uh, era out there. And Reno County would have been considered part of what was called the Dust Bowl and as farmers homesteaded this, these hundreds and thousands of acres, uh, they plowed the land for crops, and then that was followed by a multi year drought, and that topsoil just blew off. It's windy in Kansas. Um, they say that the winds in Kansas, uh, winds of the prairie, of this dust bowl, uh, carried topsoil. To Chicago and beyond, even uh, they said that, I think it was the winter of 1938, there was a red snow in the New England states as a result of dust, the topsoil blowing off the prairies of Kansas. As you look at these pictures of what Uh, and this is in Nebraska, and look how much topsoil blew and actually covered vehicles and and so forth. It just uh, completely changed the landscape. But there's something that's missing in, in these pictures as you look at them, and that is trees. You don't see any trees. In response to the Dust Bowl, the government had more than 200 million trees planted strategically. In that area, in the Dust Bowl. I mean, that covered multiple states to reduce this widespread erosion. Most of the trees in the prairie of Kansas right now, today, are the result of those trees being planted by hand 70 to 80 years ago. And that's pretty amazing when you think about that. There are strips of trees about 100 feet wide were planted about every half mile or so to stop the wind and to minimize the dust erosion and uh, to keep that to a minimum. And to this day, those strips of trees, it wasn't until years later, they're called shelter belts, uh, which makes sense, I mean, but they were planted strategically to do that. I've entitled this morning's message, Life-Giving Trees, We're going to talk about and think about trees. Trees are the largest and oldest living things in the world. Think about that. Trees are the largest and oldest living things in the world. The giant sequoia trees out west, out in Washington uh, or, uh, or California and Oregon, are so big, they're difficult to even photograph, to get a perspective on, on how large they are. Notice the person, the adult, standing there. Um, they are just enormous trees. again, a person standing here at the base of a tree walking along there. The largest of these trees is known as General Sherman, and uh, there's a person there and there's people down here at the bottom. It's not only the largest living tree, it's the largest living organism by volume on the planet. It's estimated to be 2100 years old, weighs 2.7 million pounds, is 275 feet high, and the circumference of the trunk is 102 feet. Now, I don't know exactly, but I wouldn't be surprised if that would be comparable to the size of this room. I mean, maybe a bit smaller than that, but it's, it's massive uh, when you think about uh, the size of that tree. The branches, it has branches that are over seven feet in diameter. Um, and So it's just a massive tree. This tree is in California and is called Methuselah and it is one of the oldest known trees in the world. It's approximately 4,800 years old. Um, It was discovered in 1957 And was named after, obviously, the biblical figure Methuselah, who was the oldest man. Based on this tree's age, or estimate, it's estimated that this seed would have germinated around 2833 B.C., which is makes it older than the Egyptian pyramids. Uh, So this tree has been living in the United States, in California, for about 4,800 years. This tree uh, is Sarva Arbaca. It's a cypress tree found in Iran, and it. They uh, some people would say that this is the oldest tree. I don't. I mean, it's impossible to know. They say it's five thousand years old. Uh, the circumference of the trunk of this tree is uh, some over thirty-five feet, and I forget how tall it is. But it's a large tree. Um, and it has uh, been a, it has been preserved in Iran for many, many years, and it has legends around it. Some say it was planted by Zoroaster, an Iranian prophet, five thousand years ago. Others say, and uh, other legends would have that Japheth, the son of Noah, planted this tree. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's pretty remarkable to think about that possibly Noah's son planted this tree and it is still living today. Trees are life-giving. It's estimated that a single mature leafy tree can uh, produce a day's supply of oxygen for somewhere between two and ten people. Uh, I mean, just continually is doing that. One acre of forests absorbs six tons of carbon dioxide and puts out four tons of oxygen every year. The net cooling effect of a young, healthy tree is equivalent to ten room-size air conditioners operating 20 hours a day. One tree, the cooling effect, is the same as 10 room-sized air conditioners operating 20 hours a day. The leaves on trees filter the air we breathe by removing dust and carbon dioxide and other particles and releasing oxygen in its place. I don't think it's a coincidence that trees are frequently seen in scripture. And I believe that they are all, they point to God and to righteousness. Matthew Sleeth, in his book, Reforesting Faith, has observed that that there is a tree mentioned or associated with every significant event in Scripture. I haven't verified that assertion, but that's interesting to think about. But there are literally hundreds of, Of references to trees, to forests, to specific kinds of trees, to wood, the fruit from trees, leaves, vines. Trees are just just permeate scripture. It begins in the Garden of Eden in the second chapter of the Bible. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put a man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made him made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight. To the sight and good for food the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil these two trees the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil is really at the very center of the story of scripture in a lot of ways um, it establishes the context for a lot of other scripture now, I'm not going to read Well, yes, I will take time to read this in chapter 3, and we're familiar with this. But again, notice how how prominent the tree plays in this whole unfolding story. Now the servant was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said... You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired, and to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves, again from trees, together to make themselves loincloths. And he heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, how prominent the trees play in this whole story and then continue to the end of that chapter then the Lord God said behold the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken and he drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the Tree of Life. So here, particularly, the Tree of Life had to be protected and uh, and preserved uh, from man, that fallen man, to uh, partake of that. But then, what's interesting? So here's the Tree of Life mentioned in Genesis 2 and 3 we jump to Revelation 22 the last chapter of the Bible then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city and on either side of the river the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations and a bit earlier in Revelation as well, the letter to the church at Ephesus, which we're studying in Sunday school, he concludes, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's just a sampling of, I think it gives you a picture of how the trees... Figure into the story that we see in Scripture and this tree of life at the beginning and the end, and then the trees in between. I'd like for you to turn to um, Psalm chapter 1, and this is my text for this morning as we think about this idea of trees in Scripture, of, of life giving trees. This is a very familiar psalm. Um, Most of us have probably memorized it. But the trees and the, the analogy of trees that we see in Scripture consistently point to God, to righteousness, and to godliness, as we see in this psalm. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So the psalmist here is talking about, is describing two very different people different types of people and the results that go with that. And it's a, an incredibly figurative or a, an incredibly descriptive uh, psalm, in just a few words how he describes the godly and the ungodly. Now one thing I'll just mention here is um, obviously we cons- we are Christians, we are believers, but do you know of anyone or I don't know of hardly anyone that I can think of that would describe themselves as ungodly? and so uh, just keep that in mind here it's, it's he's de- contrasting here, but I don't know of anyone that would actually call themselves ungodly they would They would say they're basically good, uh, or most people I think would would describe themselves that way. But looking at the godly first, first of all, I'll just note. That they prosper. Whatever they do shall prosper. Um, you might say that this is a recipe for success. Uh, what we see here, a description. But the godly prosper. The other thing, another thing that they do is, his, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. This idea of delighting and meditating has to do with finding extreme pleasure and satisfaction in God's word. And not only finding satisfaction there, but then thinking intently and at length about it and what it means and what God has done and remembering what God has done for us. That's a description of the godly. Then he goes on and describes in terms of a tree. They are like a tree. A stable, deeply rooted, constantly growing tree that is nourished by fresh water, It's producing good fruit, has healthy green leaves, and there's just a lot about it that is just both attractive and appealing, and actually brings life. Think about the characteristics we described earlier of giving off oxygen, of filtering the air. It's doing all of that. And that is what he describes here as a godly man. Whereas the ungodly, while we see a bit of a description here at the beginning, or an implied description, is that... um, but the ungodly are, are not so. Uh, they're very different. In fact, it says that they will perish. They will not prosper, but they will perish. And where do they find their pleasure? Again, back here at the beginning, they find their pleasure and satisfaction with sinners and scorners. That's where they get their pleasure and satisfaction. And... Um, sorry, I'm going the wrong way here. They are like chaff, like the chaff which the wind drives away. Chaff is the leftovers from a wheat harvest. It's what? The waste. It's dead. It's useless. It's dirty. Comparing that to the tree, where a tree is stable, it's beautiful, it's uh, elegant. There's no future, there's no purpose, there's no use for chaff except to be blown away. And what's amazing is that it's our choice. The psalm is putting in our choice. Would we rather be a tree or would we rather be the dust from the chaff? It's our choice by not choosing godliness we are choosing ungodliness. And in the same way, by choosing godliness we're rejecting ungodliness. I certainly didn't do an exhaustive study of this, but in Jeremiah 17 we see a very similar type of comparison. Jeremiah 17 verse 5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man And makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert, and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water, that sends out its roots by the stream, and does not fear when heat comes, for it leaves, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit." He goes on in this uh, few verses later talking about how the heart is deceitful above all things and, and desperately sick, but here again we see a, a, a comparison, it's not, between, it's not called the godly and the ungodly, but here he's calling it the man who trusts in man and the man who trusts in God. A man who trusts in man is ungodly, because he trusts in himself. He turns his heart away from the Lord, and he's like a shrub in the desert. And there's no good that comes out of that, and it's going to be dwelling in a parched place. There's no fruit. It's uninhabited. There's just nothing attractive or appealing about that. And he's cursed. This person... Is cursed. Now the man who trusts in the Lord is like a tree. His roots draw the water from the water, the nourishment from the stream. The heat, uh, he does not fear when heat comes. It uh, or drought, it doesn't bother him. It doesn't uh, bring fear. Its leaves remain green, and it keeps producing fruit. It will not quit producing fruit. And he's described as blessed. And so again, you see the contrast here. Blessed or cursed. God's way or my way. Our hearts determine our loyalties. And then in Isaiah 61, and this is the passage that Jesus read in the temple when he first went to the uh, temple, when he began his ministry, but then going on just a bit further. Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So here he's describing this uh, this righteous person, these righteous people. And he's saying that all of these things happen, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, and it's the planting of the Lord, so that God is glorified. So I'd like to look at five characteristics of that we're life-giving trees when we are these characteristics and um, the first of these is that we're rooted securely, that we're rooted deeply. The roots of a tree determine much about the health of the tree and uh, the, the character of the person, if you will. What is it that we ultimately trust? Who is it that we deeply trust? Colossians 2, therefore as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. We are to be rooted and established in Jesus Christ. And then beyond that, in Ephesians chapter 3, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family on heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with the power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, May have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So we are to be rooted deeply, um, securely. Secondly, we are to be producing sweet and refreshing fruit. Obviously, there's a lot of scripture verses in the New Testament that we could point to here. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The fruit of the Spirit we will produce the fruit of the Spirit will be produced in a life-giving tree. And then Darren read Colossians 1 this morning, and I just want to again highlight one phrase out of here. So we're to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work. Again, bearing fruit, producing fresh, producing sweet and refreshing Fruit. The third aspect is that trees grow, a life-giving tree is growing constantly, never quit growing. The only reason the Methuselah tree, the General Sherman, that other tree in Iran are still alive today is because they have never quit growing. If they quit growing, di- they die or they have died. And that's the same that same principle applies to us as Christians, that we are growing constantly. We should never quit growing. Ephesians 4 um, familiar passage verses 11 to 16, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain into the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may be no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves of every wind and doctrine but wind of doctrine, but by cunning, human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint in which it is equipped, when every part is working properly, makes the body grow, so it builds itself up in love." Now, This is talking about, in a a sense, I think, to the both aspects. It's talking about an individual continuing to grow in Christ, but then at the same time, it's about having the body grow. The church, a collection of individuals also are growing, uh, growing up into love. <clears throat> and then Second Peter 3:18, "But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The fourth characteristic is that of purifying the air around us, emitting pure oxygen to those around us. Like I mentioned earlier, the leaves on trees filter the air we breathe by removing dust and carbon dioxide and other particles and releasing oxygen in its place. Godly lives, Christ-centered lives, will have a purifying effect on those around us. The poisonous carbon dioxide is replaced by refreshing oxygen and hope. The despair and hopelessness is replaced with, with a sense of purpose and hope. The fear and loneliness is replaced by love and concern. And so, those are ways that a believer emits oxygen and purifies the air around us. And the last one is that we're life giving trees when we are providing a place of shelter and refreshment. Trees provide a place of shelter for many animals and birds and they also provide shade for, and refreshment for us as humans as well. Godly lives will naturally draw others to that which is refreshing. and uh, If we are a healthy tree, a life-giving tree, it will draw others into that place of, of shelter and refreshment. So my challenge for you this morning is, are we chaff, are we a shrub, desert shrub, or are we a life-giving tree? And it doesn't really matter what you would like to be, the question is, what are we in the eyes of God? What does God see us as being? So just, um, sorry, I'm not sure what happens. Just summarizing, God is calling us to be life-giving trees that are rooted securely, that are producing sweet and refreshing fruit, growing constantly, where we never quit growing, purifying the air around us, and providing a place of shelter and refreshment. And my question to you is, are you willing to answer that call on our lives to become the life-giving trees that point back to God? Let's stand together for closing prayer. Father, thank you for the beauty of trees Thank you for the use of trees throughout Scripture in pointing to you. Thank you for the incredible living picture that life-giving trees are for as far as what you want us to be. Just ask that as we go from here that you would um, enable us to become the life-giving, fruit-bearing, oxygen-emitting, deeply rooted trees that you want us to be in ways that will provide shelter and refreshment for those around us. I ask that you would go with us from here, dismiss us with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.